0: The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know Need to Know is a new quarterly podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. is need to know. On this episode we'll be looking at the events that took place between July and September 2017. Today's show will be dominated by discussions on North Korea, the Barcelona attack, and the failed Parsons Green tube bombing in London. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to mention other significant events that happened during the last quarter. In July, the Australian security services foiled a terrorist plot to detonate a bomb on an Australian airliner. One of the worrying aspects to this plot is that a senior ISIS commander reportedly sent parts, including weapons-grade explosives, by air cargo from Turkey to the plotters in Australia. In August, we saw further evidence of the rise of the far right in America. Headlines were dominated by the events of Charlottesville, in which white nationalists marched through the town and clashed with anti-racism protesters. During the clash, Heather Heyer was killed and many more were injured when a car was used to target protesters in a similar fashion to the vehicle-based attacks that we have seen in London and Europe. In September, North Korea conducted its largest nuclear weapons test to date. The international reaction to this was of condemnation and concern as North Korea appears to be making significant progress towards its aim of becoming a nuclear armed state. We will now go to an interview about North Korea that I recorded earlier with Anthony Ruggiero from the Foundations for Defense of Democracies. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to Need to Know.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Before we get stuck into North Korea, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to focus on North Korea?
1: Sure. Uh, You know, I'm a senior fellow now at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Before that, I had a 17-year career in the U.S. government uh, with 13 years at the State Department and, and about four years at Treasury and... Uh, I work for Senator Marco Rubio. Last year, uh, you know, you know, the way I, I came to North Korea was uh, it was a choice amongst three things I could do in 2001, and I chose North Korea. So uh, I feel like I chose wisely.
0: Yes, no, you definitely uh, <laughs> you definitely have. Um, can you just uh, give us a, an overview of what the kind of current crisis with North Korea is?
1: Sure. You know, right now we're we're looking at uh, North Korea getting. Very close to its goal of, of having a nuclear weapon that it can deliver to the United States, uh, they they would be using a long range missile for that. And there's a lot of questions on how we got here and and, and why we haven't stopped them before. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of fits and starts, and yeah. unfortunately, this is a, here in the United States, it's a bipartisan policy failure. Uh, and you know, I, you know, the North Koreans have been uh, stand fast in their goal, and uh, we we have had a policy that has fluctuated between only negotiations or only sanctions, uh, and and really the only way that it will ever work is if we have the if we have the two complement each other. Yeah, and and so you're saying that, that
0: basically um, because of the kind of different policies per different governments, kind of led this to kind of um, kind of carrying on maybe beyond what it should have done
1: yeah that's right Uh, you know we have in the 1990s we had uh we negotiated what was known as the agreed framework uh, by the clinton administration and and that was an effort to essentially freeze north korea's known nuclear program uh nuclear weapons program uh at a a nuclear facility called Yongbyon. Uh, but what we learned uh, during the implementation of that deal is that North Korea was cheating on it. Uh, we learned that North Korea uh, had a secret uranium enrichment program, which is a, an alternate pathway uh, to a nuclear weapon. Uh, the Yongbyon facility was, at the time was only plutonium, and so North Korea you know, was, was fine to have us in that facility uh, you know, focused on that while they were doing something in secret. And then, you know, there was, there were, there was a lot of back and forth on that. And, mm-hmm. um, and then in 2005 began the six, but what are known the six party talks, uh, with, with China, mm-hmm. Russia, uh, U.S., North Korea, South Korea, and Japan. And that led to the 2005 joint statement, which I was a, I was a delegate I, and the nonproliferation advisor to that, uh, to the U.S. delegation. And that that deal, uh, you know, that deal bogged down. Eventually, Uh, what we learned during, you know, that during the negotiations, North Korea built a nuclear reactor in uh, in Syria that was destroyed by Israel in 2007. Uh, So, you know, we've there's been other deals with North Korea that have been broken. But unfortunately, you know, every time we've gone gone back to try and uh, to try and get them to to negotiate their deal uh you know to negotiate a deal it has not not worked out very well
0: Yeah. In a way, you've sort of answered this, but could you just give us a crash course into the context of this crisis and how sort of
1: North Korea kind of got to this point? Sure. You know, North Korea, uh, you know, North and South Korea were actually, you know, know, I believe uh, not too long ago, maybe 40, you know, I guess 40 years ago, 40 or 50 years ago, um, you know, their their economies were very similar. Uh, They were separated by the demilitarized zone, you know, the Korean War. Uh, never officially ended, right? It ended with an armistice, uh, meaning that it's still officially ongoing, but it's a, you know it's somewhat of a truce, uh, and uh, and that, and that has never really been solved. But you know, North and North and South Korea's paths have diverged. Uh, you know, South Korea, after a period of uh, you know military you know military rule. Uh, moved into uh, democratic rule and and now is a prosperous uh, you know uh, democracy in Asia and North Korea is is obviously not I mean North Korea is a communist state that's whose people are suffering at the hands of the regime and and you know that are squandering uh, the resources that they have you know if if North Korea was not this this state, uh, you know the resources they have and coal and other and minerals and other other items, you know. They, I mean, they might not be a rich a rich state, but they would be certainly more prosperous than they would be now. And that's that's really the tragedy of, of the three generations of Kim. Um, you know, Kim Il Sung, who's the the grandfather of the current leader. Uh, you know, really created the state, uh, and uh, you know, fought in the you know, or led the led the the, the country in the Korean War, uh, and then he gave way to his his son Kim Jong Il, uh, and then obviously the father of the current leader, and then the current leader Kim Jong Un, who uh, who was educated abroad, or educated in Europe, and uh, had at one time had been seen as a as a reformer. Uh, but but he is uh, he's not a, you know, not obvious that he's a reformer. He doesn't look like a reformer. Uh, so you know that's that's kind of where we've gotten. And you know I think for North Korea they have this perception that uh, the United States has a hostile policy against them, and that the only way to really um, change that is to have nuclear weapons.
0: Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, just from sort of what I've seen and read, and um, I could be wrong on this, but it seems like north the North Korean government empowers itself on this sort of narrative that America is trying to attack it.
1: Right. I mean that that is that is a narrative that they that they like to put out there. Uh, you know. So uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric uh, more recently, obviously on both sides, uh, and I think that I think that part of that is. Uh, that each side is trying to signal to the other Uh, you know the United States is trying to signal to uh, North Korea that you know signal or deter it from from doing certain actions which they've done in the past right you know it's only seven years ago that North Korea uh, you know, torpedoed a, a South Korean naval vessel, killing over 40 sailors, and also shelled a South Korean island. So they do have a they do have a history of lashing out. Uh, so it's important to it's important to uh, make sure that they understand that. But you know, the rhetoric also needs to be measured, uh, and I think part of that is 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 being lost because I think it's gotten a little bit out of control, uh, frankly, on both sides and and that's the most dangerous part is you know, we're closer now to miscalculation, uh, than than really ever before and we have no real way to to de escalate. Yeah.
0: And can you just tell us a little about a bit about China and Russia's support for the state over the years?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, uh during the during the Cold War, uh North Korea uh, you know, had a tendency of, of playing Russia and China off each other in terms of their support uh, through through various times in their history, Uh, and then after the Cold War, uh, you know, the after the Cold War, the North Koreans realized that they had to have uh, they had to um, sustain themselves uh, because obviously the former Soviet Union was was uh, you know had to was more internally focused Uh, and. You know, their relationship with China, uh, grew stronger. Um, they, at, at one time, they had a very close relationship. I, I you know, the phrase is always, uh, the China-North Korea relationship is, is like, uh, your lips and your teeth and, uh, you know, how close they are. Um, but I, I would say at this point, you know, there's two, there's two parts of the China-North Korea relationship. There's a political part and there's an economic part. The political part uh, seems to be in disarray, uh, and part of that is that um, Kim Jong Un, the, the the leader of North Korea, uh, he when he first took power, really uh, basically uh, you know, purged many people, and including one of those people was his uncle, um, who was very close to China, and and that is seen as a sign that. Uh, that that he doesn't he, that Kim does not want a close political relationship with China. On the economic side, the the relationship is is far more extensive. You know, North Korea does uh, 85 to 90 percent of its trade with China um, only. You know, so so that relationship and that's leverage there. In terms of you know both countries, China and Russia, unfortunately have been involved in. In facilitating sanctions evasion uh, for on behalf of North Korea, and that becomes, you know, for for both of them, it's really hypocritical, right? Because they're, you know, vote, unanimously voting for UN resolutions, uh, and then they are, you know, sometimes in the same breath or the same instance, they are they are violating those sanctions, uh, you know, very clearly.
0: And it might seem a bit of an obvious question or a silly question, but
1: can you tell us why North
0: Korea's nuclear weapons program is of such great concern to the United States and its allies in the region?
1: You know, I think North Korea's program, uh, you know, it started as a concern about uh, another state having a nuclear weapons program. Uh, and and that was is certainly a, a concern. You know, we didn't want, the United States didn't want North Korea to have a weapons program. That's just, that's... Generally, the non-proliferation policy of of I would I would think most Western nations, um, and that that was that was really the approach in the 90s. And and as I said, there was there was some you know thought that 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 approach had been successful, right? That that it had stopped the weapons program, um, the known known weapons program. But really, the concern about North Korea has morphed into, you know, I guess two two parts. And the first is ensuring that they don't have a nuclear weapon that they could use to threaten the United States. Because, you know, from my perspective, I don't see them on a suicidal mission um, to, to use a nuclear weapon against the United States. I think they want the ability to threaten that. Uh, and then, you know, in a crisis scenario, be able to uh, hold the United States back from coming to the defense of, South Korea or Japan, and then the second part is is a part I alluded to earlier, which is on proliferation. Uh, you know, the fact that North Korea built a nuclear reactor in Syria, the, the suggestion that they might have shared uh, nuclear material uh, with uh, Libya, uh, which at the time was pursuing a, a covert um, enrichment facility, uh, and their, their ability, you know, their desire to sell basically anything to anyone. So, you know, I think the concern now has morphed into it, and especially North Korea's very strong relationship with Iran. There's this thought that, and I think it's true, is that North Korea could become a global nuclear proliferator if we're not careful. Yeah. And, and sell that technology on to hostile states. That's right. That's right. I think, you know, there's always a question about uh, non non state actors. Uh, and, you know, that certainly the North Koreans could be tricked into selling it to a non state actor. Uh, I just find that I, I think there's a chance they could sell to a country like Iran or Syria that it has a strong relationship with a uh, with a terrorist group. But you know, the the full on, you know, direct sale to a terrorist group, I think I put that in the category of launching a nuclear weapon against the United States. I think the North Koreans understand that that would be a significant red line that would be hard for them to, to survive.
0: Yeah, well. Maybe it's good to go into this. What is sort of the worst case scenario with regards to North Korea and its nuclear weapons?
1: I think, you know, the, the worst case scenario right now is, is that uh, we have a mis- miscalculation. I mean, uh, whether that includes nuclear weapons use or, or not, I, you know, I mentioned it earlier. I think the, the biggest issue here right now is that uh, we don't have a de escalation method uh so you know and I, i fully support that but the problem you know when you start to think about that right you start to think okay well we had some of that with the soviet union we've had it with other adversaries um you know even if it's just you know military to military uh but you know there there was a mechanism called the New York channel, um, which which is basically a, a channel for the, the U.S. and North Korea to to have discussions, because of course we don't have diplomatic relations, and North Korea has a uh, U, a mission at the U.N. in New York. That channel was closed by North Korea. There's been some evidence uh, recently that there's been some talks through it, but no no suggestion that 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 uh, mechanism has been reopened, uh, you know, on a more permanent basis. And then the South Koreans have, have really requested um, a military to military uh, talks or mechanisms of, of some kind through the, through the demilitarized zone and that has been rejected by North Korea. So we have this sort of escalating rhetoric uh, which is very problematic on both sides, uh, but we don't have this mechanism uh, to really to de-escalate it. And that's, that's really the problem there
0: yeah one thing you mentioned earlier that just stuck out to me um with regards to nuclear weapons it um i I can't remember exactly how you phrased this but you sort of mentioned that um one of the one of the purposes of having nuclear weapons could be to stop the u.s from defending south korea if there were a future invasion i mean is there a likelihood that north korea once it is nuclear armed could seek to sort of um, invade south korea and try and and sort of try and take the territory
1: right i mean from from my perspective and a lot of experts uh you know north korea's ultimate goal is to reunify the peninsula on their own terms and so uh part of that is uh being able to to use their weapons in that way uh at some level maybe to uh you know to to uh uh prevent north prevent the u.s from coming to south korea's aid right it's the it's the classic you know uh are you gonna you know are you gonna trade san francisco for seoul or toledo for tokyo uh and you know i think that the north koreans are, are are sort of banking on the fact that the answer to those questions will be no, and then you know going to the the non-proliferation a- angle of this, uh, then that's that's dangerous too, right? Because then what does South Korea and Japan think about the nuclear umbrella, which has been the 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 you know, nuclear umbrella is the, is this concept that the United States uh, will protect non-nuclear weapon states uh, from? from nuclear or other types of attacks saying, you don't need to have nuclear weapons because we will defend you. And and South Korea and Japan are are two of the most prominent uh, beneficiaries of that policy. Uh, And if that that policy is not uh, not reliable, then do South Korea and Japan uh, look at nuclear weapons uh, for their own uh, safety and then and then you start to think, okay, well w- we haven't been able to prevent North Korea from uh, uh, you know using or acquiring a nuclear weapon. So then uh, what does that say about Iran? Because then Iran will say, well, you know what, maybe not now, maybe at the end of my our deal we're gonna have a nuclear weapon And then what about the countries around Iran that say, I'm not going to wait for a nuclear, we- a nuclear, we- uh, a, a, an Iran with a nuclear weapon. Uh, I'm going to move forward on that more quickly now. So there's, you know, there's obviously, you know, a more, um, a more uh, global effect to North Korea's role. Yeah. So potentially more
0: countries wanting nuclear weapons for their own defense, which by numbers makes it more likely somebody might use one one day. That's
1: right. That's
0: right. Yeah. And what is which is regards this worst case scenario? Um, am I right in understanding that at the moment um, China has said that if America struck first then they would get involved, but if North Korea strikes first they, they won't sort of in a sense retaliate to the United States. What is the situation with China at the moment with North Korea in this crisis.
1: Well, you know, I think the Chinese are trying to telegraph for North Korea certain areas that are off limits for North Korea as well. And so I, you know, it's interesting to see all these different uh all these different sides trying to deter each other, right? Um, you know, I think there's some compellence going on where the United States is trying to compel China to do more, right? They're trying to compel China to take sanctions seriously and to act against uh illicit transactions and, and all of that but you know china and the united states are trying to deter uh trying to deter north korea from you know doing things that they've done in their past in terms of lashing out and we are in a dangerous situation you know over you know flights overflying japan are are, are dangerous but they're at a you know an altitude uh you know that's 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 not as dangerous obviously if it fell on the population it would be problematic uh, but you know something as as what used to be non-controversial as uh, flying uh, missiles toward Guam could be uh, could be very problematic for uh, for them mm. and
0: we've now we've seen the kind of or uh, well, we've seen and heard the war of words between President Trump and North Korea's leader Kim jong-un what is actually being done at the moment to resolve this situation
1: you know the issue here is you know what policy do you want to pursue you know i think it's uh i think it's the the present policy of of the trump administration is denuclearization which i know a lot of people like to criticize uh unfortunately those are those are people that want to accept north korea as a nuclear weapon state which has all the the downsides that, that i discussed earlier uh, and then you look at the, the the sort of menu of options, right? Um, so uh, one option that's suggested is a freeze of North Korea's uh, nuclear and missile programs, and and there, there are so many things that, that are wrong with a freeze that, that uh, you know, first of all, we we have that history I described where in two prior. Freeze efforts. Uh, they either developed a, a covert nuclear program, or they built a nuclear reactor in in, in Syria. So it's very it's you know, it's very difficult to keep North Korea contained in that way. Uh, and and then you know North Korea is never going to accept the level of uh, inspections necessary. For example, if we if we had agreed with a freeze on North Korea, you know they're clearly working on advanced thermonuclear weapons. Are we? Are, are the North Koreans going to let us uh, into those facilities? Are they going to tell us where they are in that weaponization work? And are we going to be able to inspect and prevent them from continuing that work? And the answer to the, all those questions are no. Uh, uh, you know, on the missile program, the North Koreans are working apparently on far more advanced icbms than the ones the intercontinental ballistic missiles the ones we've already seen um are they going to let us into those uh, facilities are they going to let us uh you know inspect those the answer to that is clearly no so then what's the value of a freeze i mean the point i'm making is that you're not even you're not drawing the program back and you're actually not preventing it from advancing and then you look at the military option and you know, putting aside retaliation, because I think everybody agrees that if North Korea attacked South Korea or Japan or the U.S. or uh, one of our allies, that retaliation would be appropriate. Um, this is more of a preventative or preemptive, uh, preemptive strike, right? Uh, you know, the problem there, of course, is that, uh, North Korea's missile and, and nuclear program has advanced to, uh, to such a, you know, to such a level that, uh, I, I find it hard to believe that we would be able to find enough of their weapons to prevent a second strike capability. Uh, so, that, so that becomes uh, a, a difficult policy option. And then you look at sanctions. I mean, for me, sanctions, I know there are a lot of myths out there, uh, people who suggest that we've had very strong sanctions or that they've been well enforced. And, uh, you know, a lot of my research uh, more recently has been focused on you know, just purely uh, providing some numbers and just sort of hopefully opening people's eyes about, uh, you know, just really focusing in on how how the sanctions programs have really been deficient against North Korea. And how if we you know, if we start to increase that, uh, you know, for two purposes, the first is certainly all of us, I think, hope is that it would lead to a similar uh, conclusion. It would lead to a similar result that we had with Iran. Right. I think even critics and supporters of the nuclear deal agree that uh, Iran was brought to the table because of sanctions. And so after that, then you're so you're hoping that it'll bring a a serious North Korea to negotiations for denuclearization. But even if that doesn't happen, you know, the second uh, the second uh, policy option or the second goal of sanctions would be. uh, And it's a complementary goal, which is to protect the U.S. and its allies against North Korea's uh, provocative behavior, whether that's missile tests or proliferation or. Other options. So, you know, there are reasons to pursue this policy, uh, you know, at least for me. That's how I look at the policy options. And, you know, when people say there are no options, I, I say, you know, there's one good option that's still there uh, that doesn't uh, lead us to a war and uh, doesn't lead us to kick this can down the road again. Yeah.
0: And what do you, I mean, me says this, but what do you think would be the best quarter, course of action in response to North Korea's provocative missile and nuclear tests at the moment?
1: Well, you know, I think on the response to the tests, I mean, we have to break out of what I like to call the provocation response cycle. You know, the North Koreans like to like to provoke us uh, with these missile tests and nuclear tests. And certainly they're They're dangerous. I don't want to dismiss them. But, you know, the goal here is denuclearization and the focus needs to be on how do we get from here to there on denuclearization. And and I I would also say, you know, part of that cycle is that, you know, we we uh, and I think the Trump administration has actually started to break out of this is, you know, we sort of when we get into this cycle, we wait until the next provocation to do a set of sanctions, and you know, sanctions are only going to work if it's part of a, uh, a robust policy. It's also only going to work if it's part of a diplomatic strategy, and it seems like that's what we're focused on now. You know, all of these recent uh, information, you know, recent announcements by countries of stopping trade and and, and reducing diplomatic out uh, diplomatic outposts for North Korea. Even the Chinese have gotten into the into the process where they've, they've announced some increased restrictions. Uh, you know, all of that is dipl- diplomacy and sanctions working together. Uh, and that's really a success story. And what do you think the future holds with regards to North Korea? The two things I worry about in the short term are, um, well, one in the short term and one in the longer term. The short term is the miscalculation part of aspect, uh, certainly concern that, uh, that rhetoric com- um, combined with uh, actions on one side or another that could be misinterpreted uh, would be, you know, could be pro- problematic, right? Um, so that's one. And then, you know, in the medium to long term, I I worry that this um, that this Kim regime is is not ready uh, to give up its weapons program, and and that uh, it might it might never be ready. And then we have to start. Uh, having a serious conversation about what does that mean and if our goal is still denuclearization do we have to start talking about uh, what a different regime looks like Uh, it
0: seems to me that the the Kim regime almost needs these nuclear weapons to stay in power
1: that's right they do but you know the issue here of course is that uh, is that you know money is fungible right and and they're 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 getting less and less of it. Um, we assume, right? I mean, in terms of their, um, above, above the, above the dark market, right? Above, you know, things that we can see that, you know, while the Chinese have not completely stopped buying coal despite their, their agreement, um, you know, they're buying less of it. They're clearly buying a lot less of it. Uh, so that's one thing. And then, you know, we have the other aspect, which is, uh, that, you know, perhaps they are going to increase their illicit activities uh, to, to acquire more uh, to acquire more uh, revenue. But at some point that they're not going to be able to make that up. And, you know, when you look at these networks that are inside China that are aiding North Korea, like Chinese companies and individuals and at some level banks, um, you know, these companies and individuals are making are making profit. They're not doing this because they, you know, they're they're part of the, you know, revolu- you know revolution in North Korea or Juche or whatever. They're they're doing it because they're making, in some cases, a twenty percent profit. And, you know, if the money is not there, uh, that's going to become more difficult for them. And then for the regime, you know, they really use their their money primarily in three areas: the military. luxury goods for their elites and then for their weapons programs and as that as that pool of money starts to reduce then they're going to have to uh, start to make some difficult decisions
0: yeah well thank you so much for your time today before we finish up um, i have two questions um the first one is do you have any sort of final thoughts is there anything that we've missed in our discussion today that's important to you that you want to sort of mention about this
1: topic no, just to reinforce what I said before, that I don't, you know, I don't see that we're on a pathway toward a military, uh, to a military conflict. Uh, you know, I don't see North Korea on a suicidal mission to attack the United States. I do think that miscalculation is is a serious concern that, that hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, uh, to address jointly if North Korea is w- willing to do that. Excellent. Well, Anthony, where can listeners find out more
0: about you and your work on North Korea?
1: Well, I'm on Twitter at underscore A. Ruggiero. That's A-R-U-G-G-I-E-R-O. And then I'm at uh, defenddemocracy.org. I have a a homepage there and people can see my work there.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to Patreon.com/DryCleanerCast. That's Patreon.com/DryCleanerCast. We will now go to an interview about the Barcelona attacks and the failed Parsons Green tube bombing with former counterterrorism detective and author David Videset. Hi, David. Welcome to Need to Know. Hello, how how are you? Good, thank you, good. Um, Before we discuss the recent attacks, please can you just tell us a bit about yourself for listeners who are not familiar with you?
2: Yeah, I'm a former counter-terrorist officer. I worked in America over 20 years. Um, I I worked in counter-terrorism and organised crime for uh, over half of that. Um, and since leaving the, the, the Met, I have. Um, I'm an author. I write about terrorism and organised crime in, in a series of books, and I'm also a security consultant for high net worth individuals.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Well, first up, then we're gonna we're gonna take a look at the Barcelona attack. So it was on the 17th of August. 13 people were killed, and 100 were injured as Eunice rented a van and targeted pedestrians in the city of Barcelona. Later that day, there was a second attack as well, which happened in a town called Kembras, which is 60 miles from Barcelona, and the police shot five um, suspects dead. And the day before these attacks, there was an explosion that destroyed a house in a place called Alcanar. I hope I got the pronunciation right there. Um, And the police originally thought that was a gas explosion, only later to discover that that house had been used to store and manufacture explosives. So, David, can you just tell us about what you sort of know about these attacks and the worrying increase in attacks across mainland Europe?
2: Yeah, well, I think these um, these, these are a very strange um, group of attacks that have taken place in Spain. Um, and, they, and, and perhaps um, it's important to, to remember there was an attack back in 2004. Um, and, and, and I think the, the, the attacks that we see in Spain are much more linked to organised crime than they are terrorism. Yes, there's terrorism going on, but I think there's much more in Crime element and it's, it's different North African element to everything that goes on there. You know, we had a lot of immigration from from North Africa, uh, Algeria and Morocco, of course, know, into Spain. Um, but these they, this particular group, um, they they were all from the same village. Um, somewhere in, in Catalonia, I understand. Um, and they, they, and, and the lead, the, the, the peer of the group, and that's, well, P-I-R, uh, the peer of the group, you know, the spiritual advisor was, it was an imam, um, who has, who has served time in prison. Uh, and he was, his body was found, uh, in the, uh, in the wreckage of the house in Alcanar. Um, and, and what has appears to have transpired about this is that this group have been radicalized by this man. This man has, has previous convictions for drug importation and, and other, other quite serious crimes. And it would appear that he's got this role in a mosque um, where, where they live. Um, and, and he has radicalized this group. Now, how he's managed to do that? Um, bear in mind, they're all, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of brothers that, um, that this group consists of. How he'd managed to radicalize them and then get them to come and be part of this, uh, this attack remains to be found out. Um, but they, they traveled some, uh, 80, 100 miles, um, south from, from where they lived, rented this house, and, and in this particular house, they were, they were building, uh, either a very, very big, uh, improvised explosive device or a series of improvised explosive devices um, and during the manufacture of that um, something has gone wrong and, and one or more of them have exploded and killed the Imam and I think one other inside the house in al Um Subsequently then the rest of the group um, have then moved to, uh, what, what we would term as a secondary target. You know, they, 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 they feel like they've got to go on and do something. And, and they, they then chosen to, to use one of the vehicles they have as a, as a Rame attack in La Rambla in Barcelona, um, which was killed a number of people. I can't remember how many. Um, and then the, the rest of the group then went on to, to do a, um, a, another attack. Uh, very similar to that in, in a place called Cambrils. Um I, I'm, I don't think they killed anybody there but the, the local police then, then shot them dead um it's, it's a very, very strange series of events, but, uh, but I think it, there's a, there's a, a whole theme uh, about what's going on with North African immigration and, and some of the, some of the other attacks that we've seen across mainland Europe. Um, uh, we saw an attack in London where there was a, a North African element, um, and we, we the, um, um, who was the Berlin, uh, truck attacker, you know, back in December um he, he was also north african so i think i think there's a there's an element here of of, of perhaps um no, north african organized crime and, and how it's how it's interlinking with what's going on with terrorism in europe is a different question and I, I, I suspect because of the involvement of this imam i suspect there's there's some drug importation element to it as well
0: yeah do you think they're using the drug importation to kind of finance their operations in Europe It's a
2: very strong, strong possibility. Yeah, uh, why, why are they suddenly? And um, uh, instead of, you know, instead of thinking, are they it, are the drugs supporting the terrorism? I do wonder if, in some ways, the terrorism is supporting the drugs, and, and whether they're, they're, it's a much more hand in hand approach. Um, yes, it's very possible that they, it's, it's as simple as they're, they're using the drugs importation and drug sale to finance terrorist activity on the on a mainland. Or uh, it could simply be that the terrorist activity is, is some form of cover. You know, while this, while these attacks are going on, you know, perhaps, perhaps there's there's uh, there's some form of um, major importation going on at the same time. But there, there's definitely a hand in hand approach with organised crime view.
0: Yeah, with, with back to the house in Alkana, um Is do we know whether um, it was originally intended that those explosives that actually went off in the house were intended to be used in Barcelona and Cambrils?
2: Well, I think there has been discussion, uh, that the, um, the, the, the Gaudi's, uh, church, the Cicada Familiar, I think is, um, what they call it. I think there was some discussion that that was going to be the target, but uh, there were also, um, other elements. Um, that had been uh, sort of put forward to there was a, a, a cycle tour going on and and you know there was all sorts of discussions around whether it was going to be a mass casualty attack or some form of attack against against uh, tourists and and perhaps more infrastructure attack um, and going back to what we were saying about organized crime and was this was this uh, very was this going to be similar to what we saw in Paris, which was intended as a mass casualty attack. Um, was this perhaps more something that was going to be a, a, an infrastructure attack? You know, something something that was going to be a big spectacular, um, but wasn't perhaps targeting um, lives; it was targeting infrastructure instead, and, and, and that was intended to take to take people's mind off what's that was going on. Um, it, it's, it's, diff- it's difficult to know, and I don't think the the police in, in Spain have established exactly what the target was going to be.
0: Yeah. Okay. And. Um now, am I right in believing that there had been some warnings earlier in the year that something like this could happen in Spain?
2: Yeah, well, the, the Spanish have uh, had a major crackdown on, uh, on uh, certainly North African preachers um, and, and, and those, uh, those people who have been recruiting in Spain to send people uh, to Syria to fight. Um, and and the Spanish police have had a a big crackdown, arrested a number of them and imprisoned a number of them. And again, this could be some form of blowback as a result of that, you know, leave us alone, let us get on with what we're doing and and we won't target your country. It could be something like that. But yes, there has been some history of, of preachers being arrested quite recently before the attack took place
0: yeah okay and um and again this attack was involving involving vans um and targeting pedestrians what what do you think could be done better to kind of protect protect pedestrians from this type of attack
2: if there is anything well, I think if you look at the, the types of places that are being uh, targeted by those using blood force attacks in vehicles, um, they, they tend to be straight roads. They tend to be places that have lots of tourists. They tend to be places that um, don't have thing, what, what I call street furniture on them. I uh, want to talk about street furniture. I'm talking about benches, bins, uh, lampposts, um, bollards, all of those sorts of things. And, and the rambles in, in Barcelona is very typical of the type of place that has been uh, targeted uh, with, with the vehicle attacks. You know, if you look at, if you look at Nice, if you look at both of the bridge attacks that we've had in the UK, um, they're they're all straight straight places. Um, they're, 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 there's no obstructions on the pavement, no street furniture on the pavement at all. And once you get a a, ve- a, a big vehicle or any vehicle on, onto it, and you can just mow people down uh, and, and at will, and and then very few places for them to hide it's not like they can hide behind something and, and a, a street street lamp or a bench or something will obstruct a vehicle moving down there and it would offer a degree of protection to somebody that's nearby as well um so but that that's the sort of place being targeted um in in terms of what can be done about it we need to uh, look at, at Protecting our pedestrians, and, and traditionally, especially in this country and in, in the UK, um, we we have targeted, we we we've, we've strengthened um, uh, buildings for against attack from terror attacks. And we you know we look around what Parliament, you look around Portcullis House, you look around anywhere like that. We we put big bollards in the road, uh, big concrete posts to stop. Large vehicles getting close to buildings because that's what the IRA used to do in the 90s and, and the early 2000s. they they get a very large improvised explosive device, a lorry bomb, they park that close to a building and then they they destroy the building so the building had to be, uh, completely redeveloped. Um, and, and that was their tactic and, and obviously we evolved, you know, we as a security service, we as, as the police evolved from that and, and said, well, how do we, how can we protect? So what we did, we, we, we came up with these, this bits of street furniture which we placed around these buildings and stopped the large vehicles getting close. But obviously, ISIS and and the new style of terror attacks that we've seen, and we are seeing a lot of them, is that they're not targeting infrastructure, perhaps. They're they're targeting mass casualties and they're targeting pedestrians. And the bollards that are protecting the buildings are absolutely no use to us now. Um, And and going back to what's happened since on the bridges in London, we've had to put big steel barriers on the bridges. We've had to put concrete posts on the bridges. And uh, I think, you know, moving forward, we... We we need to look at looking after pedestrians, you know, looking after the the, the lives instead of the the infrastructure. Um, we've been very slow uh, as a country and I think uh, you know as, as, a, as a, a continent in Europe um, to notice the type of attacks that were developing certainly in Palestine uh, and Israel um they, they, you know, there was, there was lots of these low tech attacks, sharp, you know, the, 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 the edge weapons attacks and, and the blunt force attack because they couldn't get their hands on explosives. They couldn't get their hands on the their hands on a precursor material to manufacture for explosives. So they, they developed these, these very low tech attacks with using the vehicles and using knives. And I think we were slow to recognize that here in the UK and certainly on mainland Europe when we were, we were still planning very much for, you know the big spectacular bomb attacks, the big spectacular, big spectacular, marauding firearms attack. We trained all our police, um, you know, all our firearms police, in order to to deal with the marauding firearms attack, and, and that's been the, been sort of the development that we expected to come, um, but that didn't happen, uh, and I think that we were slow to recognise that actually. The gun control in this country, perhaps not so much in Europe, but gun control in this country is so effective. It's very difficult for some of these people at, like it is in Palestine to get hold of a, a firearm to carry out more than firearms. It's, it's very difficult for them, as it is in Palestine, to get get hold of precursor materials to manufacture explosives. It's not impossible but it's difficult. So that means that um, we um we, we should have been looking at the low-tech attack and we should have been planning for the uh, you know these these blunt force attacks with vehicles much earlier. Um we we have we, we've got to do something about it. It's no good sitting back and saying, well we've had to and, and you know that, that perhaps it will go away. It's not going to go away. Uh we really have got to do something about it. And we've got to look at the types of places that, that might be targeted. You know, Oxford Street, Regent Street, um you know perhaps places around uh, Chelsea and Knightsbridge, all of all of those sorts of places or, or anywhere, you know, Blackpool or, or places like that that have these um, the, the, the annual events like fireworks and lights, but have these long straight promenades uh, that, that vehicles can get, can get onto. And we've got to think about how we protect pedestrians and people watching these these um, these events.
0: Yeah, and have you have you seen or heard of much um, evidence of of um, sort of changing in tactics now from the police and things with regards to these type of attacks?
2: Uh, not as such. I think the, the, the police, are, they, they put these bollards on the bridges, and I think they do recognize that they, they've got to do something about it. In terms of, um, uh, and, and also as well, if you look around uh, places like Buckingham Palace, um, all around the Mall, uh, you, they, they, they've got these huge... Um, <clears throat> Concrete bollards with, with posts that can shut off the entire area. And, and you do see more and more of that certainly over the weekends here. Um, so I think there's, there's a gradual recognition that, uh, pedestrians need to be separated from the traffic, but that's only in London. Um, and, uh, events like, uh, you know, we, 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 we've, we've got coming up very soon, we've got Guy Fawkes Night coming up very soon. Um, and we, we'll, we'll see these, these really, uh, spectacular firework displays on, on places like Blackheath, um, or, you know, places where there, there's long straight roads again. And I guess that, um, the, the police are going to have to think about, you know, instead of having traffic merging, uh, sort of with the pedestrians who are all milling around watching the fireworks, I guess the police are going to have to think about, you know, separating the two. Uh, and, and, and much like what we've seen around Buckingham Palace and around the Mall and around a lot of the royal parks, we've got these big concrete bollards, we've got knife arches. Um, and, and it's it, it shutting it down a bit. We've been complacent, um, and, and we should have, should have been ahead of the curve, but we're not behind it at the moment. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, with these with these van attacks and recent attacks, which we've had in London and Manchester, they're often described as sort of lone wolf attacks. Is there really such thing as a lone wolf attack, or are all terrorist groups like ISIS somehow directing these events from abroad, do you think?
2: Well, I, I, I don't think there really any such, such thing as, an, as a lone wolf attack. I think... Um, we, you, we can look at certain people and we can say, well, he, he's more lonely than, than perhaps somebody else. But um, but, uh, but there is always someone in the background. There's always somebody that's giving them encouragement. There's always somebody um, that is, is, is supporting them in some way. Um, especially if if, this is, if there's suicide attacks or or attacks where where people are likely to die, it takes quite a lot of encouragement. And, and I talked to earlier about um, spiritual advisors, especially in in, in Islam, um, in order to to encourage somebody to keep, you know, God no God wants you to do this. This is you're supporting the you know the Brotherhood, you're supporting the rest of the Muslims in the world. We need to make a mark here, and you know the next life will be better for you. All of that, all of that sort of encouragement. Has to take place in order to, for somebody to to go carry out one of these attacks. Um, so, you know, my my opinion is is that no, there's, there's no such thing as a lone wolf. There's always somebody. I mean, even going back to uh, perhaps the Laxenstone attack, which was the really the you know the, the the most odd one that we've seen in this country, where the guard tried to behead somebody in Laxenstone Station. Um, I think, I think even with him there, there have been, uh, strong suggestions that there was somebody encouraging them to do it. Um, and when we look at all the other attacks, um there are, these people are coming from very particular pockets, very particular communities, and we, we when we, we, see the same, same groups in the background over and over and over again, uh, and, and they're the groups that we need to be charged as opposed to. Um, I, I As
0: opposed to looking at just the attackers. Yeah, well, let's have a quick look at Parsons Green because um, some of you know there's been a lot of arrests in uh, regards to Parsons Green. Um, so, um, so on the fifteenth of September, just for listeners, um, Ahmed Hassan reportedly tried to detonate an explosive device on a busy tube train at Parsons Green Station. Mr. Hassan was later arrested and remanded in custody and charged with attempted murder. Since the attack, there have been further arrests across the UK. Um, David, could you just tell us a bit about this sort of Parsons Green attack? It kind of, you know, it sort of pretty much supports what you've just been saying to us about Lone Wolves.
2: Yeah, I mean we have to be careful. We, we're talking about this particular attack. Um, the reason being is, 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 is they, they have a suspect has been charged, um, and, uh, and it's what we call sub So, so we, we, we're not allowed to uh, speculate on what the evidence might be, but I can show you what, what what's been released to the public. Um, uh, we we know that um, that there have been a number of arrests um, and a number of men have been released uh, since being in police custody for for a week. Um, we know that the, uh, one suspect was arrested down in Dover, uh, and that he has been charged with, uh, with the preparation of the device. And there's CCTV that's been released which shows him, uh, or somebody, we believe him, to be, uh, walking from where he lived with some foster parents. Um, and, and I also understand that there is, uh, evidence which shows uh, he, um, He went from there to a court train to um, Wimbledon, Um, at Wimbledon he then spent uh, 20 minutes in the toilet Um, and and there was obviously a strong suggestion of what went on in the toilet, perhaps the priming of the device Um, and then uh, he he left the device on a a, uh, tube train shortly after that. Um, we also know that there was some uh, altercation with the police two weeks previous to this incident at Parsons Green Police Station. Uh, at, Parsons, sorry, at Parsons Green Tube Station, not Police Station, Parsons Green Tube uh, Station. Um, but we don't know yet what that what that altercation was and why the police were involved. Um, the individual that's being charged, um, he uh, he's a, a child refugee. Uh, he, he's come here from, um, uh, via Egypt, but he's originally from Syria. Um, again, there, 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 there's a number of suggestions around um, why, he, why is he here when his family were, were safe in Egypt, um, and, and, and obviously that family now live in Holland. Uh, why, why has he chosen to come here and claim to be 15, whether he is 15 is a different question. Why has he come here? What's his purpose and has he come here specifically to carry out an, an act of terrorism? Um, uh, these are all questions that, that will be answered in the trial and, and, I, and I, don't, I don't know, we, we, it would be difficult to speculate on them now. Um, but but there's, there's, there's lots of unanswered questions. The, the device that was used, um, lots of people uh, suggested that it was a, you know, a, a, an amateur. That had carried out the um, the just, uh, I made this device, but uh, having seen it and having looked at it, uh, it was, you know, it was a, a proper improvised explosive device, and it was capable of killing.
0: Yeah, I mean, th- this is the. Am I right? This is the second um, attack in the UK this year that's involved an explosive. Because we had the Manchester bombing not long ago, and that was the. F- I was that was the first sort of successful bombing in the UK involving an explosive since 7 7. I think I
2: could be that's right. correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of um, in terms of you know, explosive devices, yes, uh, we have. We hadn't. Uh, we hadn't seen explosive devices. Um, you know, when you look back at the history of terrorism in this country, um, the IRA were frequently used to to the disasters. last time we saw that was, uh, was in 2001 and, uh, in this country and on mainland. Um, then we had uh, two uh, attempted attacks uh two thousand and five, you know, one on seven seven which um, which which was successful and then the attempted attack on twenty one seven and then the following year in two thousand and six we had the the transatlantic airline plot. Um all, all of those all those three seven seven, twenty one seven and transatlantic airline plot all used a very similar um, sorts of explosives, and um, we believe that they all um, trained at the same time in the same training camp in, in order to learn how to make this explosive. Um, but then there was there was, a, there was a lull after that. You know, after these, after all of those groups were either convicted or, or, or had, had martyred themselves, there was a lull. And we didn't we didn't see really um, the manufacturing of explosives being, being uh, something that, that groups were using. And, and they, they were talking about, um, beheadings, you uh, know, they were talking about perhaps getting firearms and shooting people for moving cars. Um, and those, is, well, those were the sorts of things that we saw post 7 uh, 7, right up, right up until, uh, about 2015. Uh, we had another terrorist attack in, you know, obviously, 20, I think, 2013 when Lee Wigby was, um, was actually beheaded. Um, but, um, but, but, In reality, the um, the the explosives in a big spectacular explosive attack, we thought, were perhaps a thing of the past. Um, But you know, then in Manchester, we 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 realised that perhaps there was the capability. There are still groups of people that have this expertise, and there is an expertise that's required to build an explosive device. It's not quite as simple to. Um, just assemble the materials out of some DIY shop, and, and, and they carry it onto a train, and, and either remotely detonate it or have it on a, on a timer. Um, you know, there, there's a very, very high degree of skill involved in all of that. Um, you know, and as we saw in Manchester, they can you, you, you kill a man, you know, literally hundreds of people.
0: Mm, yeah, it was terrible that Manchester bomb. It was, uh, yeah, unbelievable. Well. Um- <laughs> Well, it's not a cheery note, but um, this might be um, a silly question, but um, I'll ask it anyway. With an attack like Parsons Green, um, how do the police go about investigating it? What kind of lines of inquiry are involved and what legal challenges are there to that process?
2: Uh, well the the way that um, they would have started with Parton Green, obviously you've got their device and fortunately it didn't explode. Um that, that would have um given the police a, a huge number of forensic opportunities. Um there would have been there would have been things like HER, fingerprints, DNO um you know this is just you've drawn the bags and the container but over and above that we also know obviously what the component parts of, of this device look like and, and we've got things like wires batteries um and and, and obviously whatever the mixture is. the trouble is when a when a when a Device explodes. Although we find parts of it, it's sometimes very difficult to establish, you know, actually how it works and um, what it was made of. And um, and, and yes, you, you know, we you go to a bomb scene and you'll, you'll find, you know, bits of plastic embedded in walls and uh, you know bits of bits of fabric, you know, uh, and, and, and quite often you know, we can piece them all back together, and, they, and, and we can work out, you know, what what the what sort of container the bomb was in. But very often we don't we don't know the type of explosions, you know, because it gets burned up, Um, and so so it's it's our best guess. So what we had in Parsons Green was this great opportunity to see exactly the chemical nature of, of what had been made um, that would have uh, then spurred the police on to, to go and say right okay we, we, this, this is the chemicals that have been used to make this explosion these are the component parts we're looking for and, and the investigation team would have part of the investigation team would have moved out to manufacturers and um, uh, and uh, suppliers of those component parts and start, started off questions. Um, the secondary side of that is obviously um, the CCTV element which on our tubes and trains and stations uh, we, we have you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of CCTV cameras and obviously on our routes from uh, those stations, there are also hundreds of CCTV cameras. So the, the next part of the police investigation will be, well, well, we work backwards from where the device was. Let's look, let's look at the CCTV on, on the trains. Um, let's, let's identify who, who left that, uh, device on the train and that would have been fairly easy. And then once they had a description or, you know, male or female and what that person was wearing, it's then not an easy task, but it's straightforward to then, then follow that person backwards and, and work out where they've got on the train and, and, and then work their route backwards. I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of man-hours involved here. It's not a not simple chart. Um, you first of all, you, you've got to, you've got to, you know, identify them, then you've got to collect all the CCTV, and then you've got to go backwards for all the CCTV, and we're, we're talking hundreds of officers, um, thousands of hours at a time trying to piece it together, but that, that's how they do it, they'll piece together a route, um, they'll work out who that person is and where they come from, um, then there'll be all sorts of other Elements that the police will be looking at once, once they've got an idea of route, you know, it's, it's, we look at, okay, well, let's look at all the Wi-Fi, uh, along those routes. So look, look at all the public Wi-Fi, let's look at all the private Wi-Fi. Let's see which, uh, which device linked up with all of the wi- all of these Wi-Fi's on the same route. Now we, now we know that the attacker has moved along that route. That might give them a telephone. Uh, give them a, you know, a, a, an IP address or give them a telephone. Um, the telephone will, you know, they can then go to the security service, security service speak to the secretary, we then hook the, hook the phone up and we can listen to what's going on. Um, and, 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 and then, then we, then we, we can track, uh, whoever that person is, you know, live or, you know, using, using satellite, et etc. et cetera. Um, and, and we can work out where they are and, and, uh, and I guess that's, Very similar to what's happened. We've traced this individual down to Dover and he's been arrested. Um, obviously then once we, once we know we've got this person, we know who they are, um, because we may not know where they live until we've got hold of them. Once we know where they live, we can then start, um, you know, looking at forensics in their homes. Um, we can start saying, right, okay, is there any trace explosives here? Is there any other component parts that are similar? Uh, cut, cut wires or and anything that, that could be used to make this device. And um, we can start matching things like fibers up. Um, you know, fibers from carpets, fibers from bed linen, fibers from clothing. Um, um and we, uh, you know, we can say, right, okay, well, this, this device that one stone sat on that cut piece of carpet there. Um, and, and, you know, we, we start piecing together an investigation like that. But it is, it's, it sounds straightforward, <laughs> but it is a, an absolute, Uh, nightmare to try and do and, 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 if you are lacking in any of these elements, it it just makes it, it just makes it much harder. You know, if, for example, you haven't caught the individual leaving the device on the, um, on the train, um, you know, because the the camera wasn't looking in the right direction or somebody was standing in the way or whatever, you know, something like that, um, we might end up with a number of people. Um, at that particular station or on that particular train, who could potentially be the suspects? And obviously, then instead of instead of just tracing one route and one journey, you might have ten, uh, and you've got to, and you've got you've got to do that ten times, you know, because you don't know which which one of those people it is. Um So, you know, that that's that's the difficulty with it. You know, cause you, I think in this case it was fairly simple because we, we saw him carrying a very particular type of carrier bag. It, 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 and, and we were able to you know, trace them that way. But, it, but it's not simple. But that, that's, that's the sort of things that the police would have been doing, the sort of things that the police would have used to trace them.
0: Yeah. Quick question, because obviously what you were just describing with the multiple suspects, it sounds like you need an awful lot of manpower. Do do you, um, well, in your opinion, do, you, do the police have enough manpower to kind of cope with these kind of investigations, or do they need more?
2: well i think the i think counterterrorism we are we, we, we're quite lucky um the 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 budget for counterterrorism is, is is what I call infen you know it hasn't been subject to some of the cuts and, and outrageous um things that the government have done to the rest of the police budget um so and and, and is one of those areas where we always make sure we've got the right number of resources when I, mean, I talk about resources i talk about cars I talk about um manpower uh you know or, and, and individuals to to work on on these sorts of inquiries um but also across the country uh now we you know, bear in mind that each police force or each police service Police area has a, um, you know, has a number of people in it, but we, we have a, a CT infrastructure, a cab infrastructure and a capture network across the country. Um, uh, and, and with Manchester, you know, Manchester, uh, Greater Manchester Police have their own capture uh, organization, um, and hub, but, um, but they perhaps might not have or didn't have the, 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 resources to deal with the attack they had up there, because they would have literally had hundred thousand of lines of inquiry. So, officers would have been drawn from the, the rest of the, the capitalist architecture across the country. Um, and, and so CT is very, we're very lucky, um, uh, in the fact that Manchester drew a number of officers from London, they drew a number of officers from West Midlands Police, they drew a number of officers from, from Thames Valley Police that could assist them. Um, But but it's very difficult um, for for other for the 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 smaller sorts of things, for the investigations and when you know the the single murders, you know they're they're the sorts of things that the police are struggling to deal with. um, As opposed opposed to the terrorism, yes, the the the, the CT network is working extremely long hours, but we always worked extremely long hours. That's not changed. Um, You know, so I, I I don't think we need to worry about counter-terrorism investigations, but what we are doing to worry about is, is, is the smaller, you know, lower-down investigations because they're the ones that are suffering.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's been a lot of talk about um the current UK counter-terrorism laws or anti-terror laws, um, and there's been lots of sort of criticism flying around. Um, Is there anything that you think that could be done to improve the current UK anti-terror laws and the fight against terrorism?
2: Well, we just had uh, recently, we just had a conviction of one of the uh, directors of Cage. um, And he was was convicted after failing to um, give out his um, password. Um, or or Kiko for his phone and and computer after being stopped under what's called Schedule 7 of the Cancerism Act. Um, And what that means is that when somebody leaving a port or arriving at a port in the UK, um, they can be detained by, by officers in question for a number of hours without any suspicion whatsoever. But um what happened with, with the, the case director is that there was intelligence which suggested that he had on his computer a number of, uh, things that might be useful to terrorists, uh, bear in mind they, they paint themselves as an advocacy group, um, for terrorists, um, and, and the, 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 the intelligence organ- agencies asked for him to be stopped and, and the police obviously acted upon that um, they then they stopped him on a schedule 7 and they, they asked him to reveal his passwords and um, said so they get into the devices um, and he refused uh, and he was then subsequently convicted but uh, unfortunately the court uh, deemed it fit to, to give him a conditional discharge after a, a conviction of a terror offence um, and I think that uh, when you look at some of the legislation that we have in place is actually quite old. When you look at the the legislation that's been used in that case, um, it was all designed before we had smartphones. You know, we we we, we didn't have things like uh, we didn't have computers that could hold, you know, literally, literally uh, hundreds and thousands of of, of bits of information. Um, we we didn't have phones that that, that could that could hold all this sort of stuff. It wasn't it wasn't necessary to. Um, to have, for this sort of thing to be so serious and, and, and the course they don't realise, they don't, they don't accept that, um that technology's moved so fast. Um, and the type of the type of individual that we're now seeing it, we, they, they, they've got lots of devices lots of media and and simply you know this is where our evidence is this is perhaps not so much the the devices that we're looking for these days you know the manufacturer explosives what we're looking for is is the communication between individuals we're trying to you know the, it's the discussions between individuals about these things before they happen that we're, we're actually trying to target um and i think that um you know the that we need to uh, bolster some of these activities and, I, and I, I'm not an advocate of, of opening up everybody's communications to the security services and the police. Um, I do think we need encryption, I do think we need um, oversight about what goes on but, uh, but I also think that um, if we, if we, encryption keeps moving the way that it does and Device um, architecture becomes so good that actually the police can no longer get into it. The security service can no longer jailbreak it and get into it remotely, or even physically when when have got it in, in their possession. Um, I, I do think we're going to be in extreme trouble. So um, there, there, there perhaps needs to be you know, some organisation um, that that we can go to, um, uh, you know, places like Apple, places like Google um and and we're on a on a case by case basis um they they actually lend their expertise because they can jailbreak these things, but it, it's less it's less easy for the police to do so but um with with what's happened over the last few years um with what's happened with snowden and 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 all just dist- all the distrust that's that's come as a result of that um people like google uh, people like Apple. You know, they, they've taken a step back from assisting the police. Um, and, uh, you know, going, going right back to, I think, 2008, there were lots of cases where Apple were quite happy to get into, uh, drug dealers telephones, get into people's, you know, murder victim telephones for the police. But since, since Snowden, post Snowden, um, that's, that attitude has changed. Uh, and, and when we look at what happened with, with the, with the case director, and the way the courts treated what, what the police did. And the police were simply trying to enforce that, look, we, we've got to have this stuff, otherwise we're not going to get into it. We're not going to know what's inside. Um, and this is an intelligence led, this is not just some random stop. It's not just some you or me that have come, you know, arrived from, from Alicante or after a holiday and the police have decided to have a, have a fishing expedition in our telephones. Um, this is the targeted stop. This was somebody who is believed to be involved in terrorist activity and uh, something the security service requested to be stopped. Um, and when we look at the way the, the, the judiciary have treated the police and treated that particular piece of legislation and said, well, no, um, we don't think it's important and we think it's outra- it's an outrageous, uh, breach of civil liberties for the police to, to want to, you, you for it, you know, for somebody to actually give you their passwords to their computers, when you know again when 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 you know that Apple, Google, Amazon, all of these places are actually now being obstructive of police investigations, so we can't get them that way. The only way in is via their passwords. So I think I think that we 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 need to look at that, um, and we we need we need a, a, a uniform approach about how that's going to be how be dealt with. You know, if individuals aren't uh, going to give their passwords. Um, and they haven't got a reasonable excuse to do so then we, we, we we've got to be looking at in prison. yeah
0: can you just tell us a little bit about who cage are
2: uh yeah cage' are, are an advocacy group um and it's, they they have a number of individuals I not don't, I don't want to discuss their names um uh, they have a number of individuals who uh who what they do is they they're very um uh they're they're, they're pro islamist um they uh, support individuals who allege uh, corruption and torture um, by uh, security services. Um, they support individuals who uh, have been imprisoned in San Guantanamo Bay um, and, um, and they, they, they act on their behalf. Um, they've been a thorn in the government side uh, for some time. Um, and and there have been a number of unsuccessful attempts to shut down what they do, you know, taking away charitable donations from them, stopping them becoming a charity themselves. Um, but they, 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 you know, they they will argue that, that it's necessary. What they do is necessary, and, and they will also argue that, you know, there is some um, evidence or evidence base for. What they're doing is right because people are are being paid out. You know, torture has taken place. You know, enhanced interrogation techniques were used. Um, and without groups like Cage and, and without them, then, then perhaps some of this stuff wouldn't have become known. Um, so, so, you know, they they do have an element of uh, respectability in that regard but um, they they sail very close to the wind um you know that that they, this is the problem and 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 trust is a big issue and um especially with with some of the individuals that work there um and and uh, you know when they go and and talk to these individuals and, and they they do get they 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 get a you know the opportunity to to meet people you know they'll meet people in prisons they'll go and talk to them in prison um but the difficulty for the security service and the police is obviously what is being discussed, you know, what is the purpose of going and seeing a convicted terrorist prisoner in a prison in this country and then straight away then travelling somewhere else and and doing something else. What is actually being discussed at those meetings, you know, what 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 is the information that's being passed. And 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 this is the this is the problem, is there's no trust between this particular group and, and the police and the security service.
0: Yeah, and they were very famous a few years ago for giving a press conference describing uh, Jihadi John as a beautiful young man, and they claimed that MI5 had somehow radicalised him and caused him to turn to terror. Yes, uh,
2: and that, that is a very typical... uh idea that some, um, that, that groups like cage uh, propagate, you know, that, that the radicalization is, is, not, is not being done by by members of the Muslim community, it's not taking place inside mosques, it's not a problem with with particular places and particular individuals, actually the problem exists with inside the British government, it exists with the British government foreign policy, it exists with the security service who try to recruit these people, you know, they, they literally try to turn uh, the, this argument on its head and, and trying twist it around and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, it makes me extremely angry because it, it's, it's, the most ridiculous thing that you could possibly ever, ever imagine. You know, how can a police officer who's actually trying to bite terror, how can they radicalize an individual who then turns into a terrorist? It's just ridiculous. But, but this is the sort of thing they say. Um, but it's antagonistic and, and obviously that, that, does not help, yeah. You know, perhaps, perhaps there's an element of um, you know, the, the way that really we, we, sh- we should be trying to you know talk to these, these people and, and trying to uh, build some some degree of trust so we can all work together because it doesn't look like they're going to work and go away,
0: yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, just, I'm going to move on to the last two questions because, uh, I don't want to take up all your time or evening. Do you have any final thoughts on the topic that we've covered that you would like to talk about that we may, may not have spoken about? Uh, no, I, I don't
2: think so. I, I think that, um, certainly there, there was an attack in, um, uh in edmonton in canada yesterday oh
1: yes
2: um yes. yesterday uh we know there, there was a couple of attacks yesterday two women were were murdered in in marseille and there was an attack in in, in canada um and uh uh, as a result of watching some of the, some of the footage of that and some of the CCTV, I'm starting to question whether the, the current advice that's being uh, pushed by the Home Office, being pushed by the police of the run high tell, I'm starting to question whether that's the right advice to be given people. Um, and, you know, when, when I looked at the footage of, of what took place in Edmonton, um, a policeman got run over, uh, he was thrown through a air and the an attacker got out of the car. Um and by that point there was already a members of the public surrounding the police officer, you know, trying to give them first aid. As soon as the attacker turned up um and started stabbing him, all of these people just ran away and, and scattered, gathered like a starburst. Um and, and I think and it was very fortunate this police officer lived. And that, these attackers that were with knives um and, and using vehicles uh, I, I'm not sure that running away um, is, is the right thing to do because what it does, it, isol- it isolates people. It allows, it allows the terrorists to then, to then pick them off at will. You know, they can go up and, and, and act at will um, with, with, a, with a knife attack. Um, we, 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 there's safety in numbers, you know, we, we outnumber these people greatly and on, on the high street, you know, there's hundreds of us on the high street. Um, and we, we'd overpower an off-tackle in, in, in like literally nanoseconds, but we won't, we won't if we keep running away and ringing the police and expecting the police to turn up. So, I, uh, you know, I'm, i starting to question now, and I, would like, you know, whoever's listening to this to perhaps think about is, is that the right advice and is that really what you want to do?
0: Yeah. I mean, if, if, Sorry, going kind off a tangent now just based on what you're saying. But if, uh, in the UK, because I know we have, I don't know how to describe it really, but quite tight laws about getting involved in certain things, and we've had what we call, I suppose, have-a-go heroes and things like that over the years. Um, sometimes people responding to these things who, you know, fight force with force can end up getting themselves on the wrong end of the law
1: as well.
2: Uh, I, well i don't i don't think that's necessarily the case uh i think when 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 you look at the people that have been convicted for um you know for assault for even murder you know there, there, there's been a uh, there's been a reason why that's happened um um when you look at i can't remember the, the chap's name uh who who shot the the two um uh, two people that broke into his premises
1: um
2: and he, he, he shot somebody in the back um, with a with a shotgun. I mean, the man's running away. If if you talk to a firearms officer, the firearms officer will, will will tell you that um that you know you've got to be able to justify even as a even as a, as a police officer, you've got to be able to justify why you've shot a person, why you've done something. Um, and and if somebody's even if, if somebody's moving towards you, um, and you you then raise your gun ready to fire, and they then turn their back and start, and start to move in a different direction, you've got to make a split second decision and, and, and think about how is that going to look if I if I catch that person in the back. And, and you know, but members of the public, they, they, they've got to realise that they, they are going to be called on to justify why they've done something, but. The reality is, it's actually very rare for, for people to be prosecuted for, for intervening. You know, the law says that that's, that's what it wants members of the public to do. Um, you know, it, it gives, it gives all of us, me, you, you know, outside of, outside of the, the police service, it gives us powers of detention, powers of arrest even. You know, if we know a criminal offence has taken place, you know, it, 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 it supports us. Um, and, but we, you know, it's gotta be reasonable and proportionate. It's not reasonable and proportionate to kill somebody who's running away from, um, from a, from a scene of a crime because you, you, you're very upset with them. Um, it's not reasonable and proportionate to, to, you know, actually take the knife off somebody and then stab them. You know, yes, that could be justified in some, uh, some circumstances, but we, we've gotta justify it. So. Um maybe, member the public are supported and the police service support them. Uh, and you know, certainly I, in my career I dealt with a number of cases where, you know, I wouldn't even call them have a go here. i say people who have, have actually done the right thing, you know, and I remember in one case there was a, a guy who, uh, there was a woman being kidnapped and, um Um, And a guy guy just happened to be sat at a red set of traffic lights and looked across and saw a woman struggling in the car and just took it upon himself to, um, to, to follow this particular car. And then you know realized that actually the woman really was in trouble uh, and, and and decided to ram the other car off the road and and then and then ended up in a massive fight with with this other person but he saved probably saved that woman from being raped at the very least you know perhaps perhaps you know perhaps even even murder um so yeah, but it, it's it's those sorts of acts that, that will you know really make a difference to to what what, what we see going on in this country.
0: Yeah, I must admit, I hate that term. Have a go here at some press term. I remember when that was. It in the 90s that term came about. I don't
2: know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, we're, 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 there's no, no such thing as a hero. But um, there, there, there's a civic duty to all of us to to look after each other. Um and, and in a in a civil society where where we're all trying to live together, we we just need to support each other and, and I think running away um or hiding from from you know, this despicable behaviour and certainly nice of that, I don't, I don't think it's the right thing to do and, and and you know, the law will support you. Um but you 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 have to justify what you do at some stage to somebody
0: yeah exactly well david thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today and where can listeners where can listeners find out more about you and your work
2: uh well i've got a website um uh, com. you know that that says a lot about me uh there and i've also got two books out um i've I've written a book about um uh, a fictional account um I call it fiction, uh, but I also have the shrapnel. On. I can't tell the truth, but I can tell you a story uh, because I'm not allowed by law to tell anybody what I really happened in 7-7, but I am allowed to tell you a story about it. And I let the reader decide actually how much of that story is true how much is fiction. Uh, so that's the thesis paradox. And then the follow-on from that is the detriment, uh, and that deals with another uh, real-life case uh, I was involved in. Um, uh, and That was the um, Glasgow attack. Uh, and and the the failed bombings uh, in 2007 in london Mm.
0: excellent well well, thank you david and um yeah listeners do do check out david's books they are very good i've read the thesis paradox um i'm yet to read the detriment but i've heard really good reviews so i'm looking forward to that Mm. i
2: look forward to hearing what you say about it (laughs) (laughs) thank you
0: (laughs) thank you for listening to need to know if you enjoyed the show please support us by becoming a subscriber on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know.